support for today's episode is brought to you by the investing app Robinhood. Recovery Elevator episode 200. Because you can't force it on anybody. No. You know, I think we all know that it has to be you have to you have to have that moment of surrender and you can kick the tires and you can have a lot of day ones but you really need to have that like I am done moment. And sometimes you have to have that I'm done moment two or three times I and mean, it doesn't always happen. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Walter. He's 47 years old. He's from Waco, Texas, and he's been sober since March 3rd of 2016. In his interview, he talks about how he married his drinking partner. It's a fantastic interview, so stay tuned. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. And don't forget, the third Cafe RE group opens up January 1st, 2019. Let's get this new year started off right. Welcome to episode 200, The Cure to Addiction. I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time, and I'm excited about this one. A Cure to Addiction? Is this even possible? Well, let's take a snapshot of what addiction is right now. At this moment in time in 2018, I feel we are at the beginning of what our understanding of what addiction even is, let alone finding a treatment or cure for it. Are we close to a cure at this moment? Unfortunately, I got to be honest with you guys, I think no way, not even close. With 83 years passing since the inception of AA in 1935, we still don't know much about what causes addiction or how to treat it, especially modern science. In 2014, there were 143 med schools in the USA and only 14 of them had one class on addiction, even though it's estimated that 40% of hospital beds are occupied due to alcohol-related issues. This is staggering. It can be said that rehab is a $30,000 plus dollar introduction to AA and 12-step programs. And the best study that I can find of the efficacy of 12-step and AA is it has a 7-8% to success rate, according to the Sober Truth by Lance Dodes. And 85% of rehab facilities use the 12 steps. Studies show that 2.5 people out of 1,000 make it to two years of sobriety. The good news is that you can continuously start over again. Governments have no idea how to deal with addiction. The 40-year, $1 trillion war on drugs has basically been a waste. 
there are still 21 million Americans, 80% of those with alcohol use disorder, who really need help for their addiction. Estimates show that of these 21 million Americans, only 10% of those get the actual help they need. I don't want to paint a grim picture for my listeners, but this is a fact. Currently, we don't know what the fuck we're doing when it comes to treating addiction. I also don't want to denounce current treatment methods. Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob created an amazing program called Alcoholics Anonymous that currently has over 2 million members in over 120,000 groups worldwide. There is smart recovery, refuge recovery, there's yoga, there's meditation. I'm going to throw a recovery elevator in the mix. People are trying their hardest and doing their best to tackle this planet's most pressing epidemic, addiction. I feel we are on the right track. I think in 500 years, when we look back at this time, we will all be looked at as pioneers for what shaped the way for recovery treatment. Or what we're doing now may be similar to bloodletting. Doctors thought for around 800 years that bloodletting was the best way to get rid of an infectious disease. Turns out, human beings need blood. I don't think this is the case with how we are currently treating addiction, but you never know. That's where we're at right now. Let's discuss what I mean when I say cure to addiction. What I'm proposing should make addiction obsolete, as in it won't happen, or at least not nearly at the level of occurrence that we see today. So I guess this wouldn't technically really be a cure, because to have a cure you would need a disease, and what I'll be covering should essentially create an environment that doesn't foment the disease. Too much of Western medicine emphasizes treating existing illnesses, since there really isn't much money to be made in getting at the source. So when I say cure to addiction, I don't mean addiction happens, then insert treatment. I'm saying addiction doesn't happen in the first place. This is the more ideal scenario, and I'd be more than happy to be out of a job. Keep in mind, this is all speculative. Some of these ideas may seem so far out, so bizarre, that it isn't even a possibility. But if you give it some thought, it kind of makes sense. Some of you will agree with this. Some of you might not want what I'm proposing to ever happen. In fact, some of it scares me too. It's uncomfortable. Who knows, if MP3s are even a thing in 500 years, I may get this spot on, or I may have wildly missed the mark. Where did I get the idea for this episode? For the cure to addiction? Well, I was at my fantasy football draft in Las Vegas this past August. We were having dinner at the Hofbra house, and I was watching my two buddies argue about the dividing topic immigration. One of them is a liberal, and the other is a conservative. They've had this same damn conversation, or a similar one, the past five drafts. I knew I wouldn't be engaging in this conversation, so I decided to just sit, listen, and observe. As they were defending their steadfast positions with eloquent and non-eloquent volleys, some based on part fact, but mostly conviction, a peculiar thought arrived. It said, the only way to solve the immigration issue is to eliminate all borders across the whole planet. And before we go any further, I want to mention this episode is about addiction, not immigration or politics. So please do your best to listen with an open mind. I said to myself, no, that can't be right. That will never happen. And then the wheels in my mind started moving. So much so that I had to step outside the restaurant and sit on a bench for about 10 minutes. My brain kept connecting the dots until I said, holy shit, that's the cure to addiction. You might be saying to yourself, episode 199 ended with you thanking planet Earth. And now you're talking about a world with no borders. Wow, Paul, I bet you're wearing Birkenstocks and have distanced yourself from all forms of plastic. Nope, 
I'm a guy who lives in Montana, the red state, who shoots clays with my shotgun for fun on the weekend. But deep down, even though some of it doesn't necessarily sit well with me, I still feel it's right. Okay, let's explore this. In my opinion, the most profound line from the book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Dr. Gabra Mate is that anthropologists have no record of addiction in pre-modern times. Contrary to popular belief, Europeans did not bring alcohol to the Native American, Inuit, and Aboriginal populations, nor to South America to the Mayans, the Incas, the Aztecs, etc. Alcohol has been around for thousands of years, and records show that all these cultures consumed alcohol. So why is it? Only within the past 400 to 500 years has abuse of alcohol and addiction become a problem. Why has a swath of addiction caused more havoc within some social groups more than others? Before we discuss that, let's look at the Rat Park experiment conducted by Bruce Alexander. I first came across this study my first year of podcasting, and I'm reluctant to say I kind of dismissed it. At that time, I was in the camp that addiction is roughly 80% genetics and about 20% environmental. Now I've done somewhat of 180 with it. I feel that addiction is about 20% genetics and 80% environmental. Okay, back to Rat Park. The study takes a look at two different environments for rats. In one cage, it has a single rat. This rat has access to food, water, and cocaine. It has the ability to administer all three at any time with a lever, or a lever, depending on where you're from. It's only a matter of time before the lone rat shows a diet of strictly cocaine and ended up dying. This process was repeated continuously with the same results. You might say, duh, cocaine is one of the top four most addictive drugs on the planet. But what happens when the environment changes? The second environment is called Rat Park, which is full of rat families, with toys for the rats to play with, with mates for the rats, and probably third eye blind playing in the background. In Rat Park, the rats have access to food, water, and an unlimited supply of cocaine. What happened in Rat Park? Well, nothing happened. Cocaine, addiction, was no longer a problem. Eliminate the stress, change the environment, and eliminate addiction. It worked for rats. It should work for us, right? Well, not so simple, but in theory, yes. And it's going to take some time. Johan Hari talks about this in his TED Talk titled, The Opposite of Addiction is Connection. I highly recommend watching this. He continues to say the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. I would say it's more of a combo of sobriety and connection, but potatoes, potatoes. I'm also reluctant to say, when I first saw Johan Hari's TED Talk three years ago, I dismissed it, and I wasn't a big fan. Now, I think for the most part, it's spot on. Johan's TED Talk is starting to echo a theme that has been presenting itself the more I learn about alcoholism and addiction. That addiction is not about the pleasurable effects of substances, it's about the user's inability to connect in healthy ways with other human beings. In other words, addiction is not a substance use disorder, it's a social disorder. Previously, when I first started the Recovery Elevator podcast early 2015, I was in the camp that the pleasurable effects from alcohol and drugs were the primary drivers for addiction, but now I feel that the pleasurable effects of alcohol and drugs help soothe inner trauma and our inabilities to connect in a healthy manner with other humans. On an individual level, we are not at fault for this. In today's breakneck, fast-paced world, we are living further and further away from other human beings. We falsely connect and spend more and more time via social media, and our society has a major problem with accumulating external possessions because we're taught that this is healthy. Unfortunately, much of today's economy is reliant upon our addictions. 
I feel the birth of addiction occurred with the mass displacement of people from their lands, communities, and roots that started with substantial land grabs by the Spanish, French, Dutch, English, and Americans on our own continent. Some groups of people who are disproportionately affected by addiction got the raw end of the stick, and they are still paying the price. What about those who weren't displaced from their lands? Maybe someone like myself and probably several other listeners. Well, life has drastically changed for everyone on the face of the planet in the past 500 years. The previous thousands and thousands, tens and thousands of years, really not that much changed. But there's been a lot of change in the recent 500 years, especially in the past 100 and even more so in the past 50 years. Before the first flight took place in 1905, it was a lot harder to leave community. Today, I think a lot of us are still trying to figure out where we belong, and this sense of alienation has affected some more than others. For myself, this has resulted in addiction. Back to the absence of addiction in pre-modern times. You might be saying to yourself, Paul, I'm pretty sure borders, boundaries, tribe lines, restrictions, precincts, confines, rivers, all existed in pre-modern times. Yes, this is correct. But when civilizations have remained unchanged and settled for upwards of 500 to 1,000 years, and you were lucky to have an oxen and a wagon, you may have never even encountered a border or really knew what that concept was in your lifetime. If everything you needed was already in your own rat park, then why leave? Now let's explore a futuristic world without borders. Again, this scares me. Big time. But if you think about it, it's really the only way things can go. We've been doing the conquer, defeat, divide, overthrow, coup, rebellion, revolution, wage war, World War I, World War II, with sticks and clubs, and now with nuclear bombs for ages. It's not working, and human beings are starting to wisen up. The EU opened its borders up in 1985. It made things a lot easier. When will this no-border fantasy world occur? I don't know. It might not. AI might have something to say about it. With the proliferation of social media and disconnection, things may get a lot worse before they get better. But barring a nuclear war, ending everything for everyone, I think this will happen in the next three to 500 years. If you're saying to yourself, I don't want to live next to a white person, or I don't want to live next to a black person, well, in the next 200 years, we're all going to be the same color anyways, so just get over yourself. I think when everyone can move about this planet freely, when we can accept all human beings as equal, when we are able to establish roots and communities wherever we'd like, then I think we'll wake up one day and see the problem of addiction slowly fade away. And before we hear from Walter, let's hear from the investing app Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. The app is simple and intuitive. It's got a clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Guys, I've been using this app for a couple months now, and it is super easy to navigate. With Robinhood, there are no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and keep all the profits. With Robinhood, you can learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with your personalized newsfeed. Get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And right now, Robinhood is giving my listeners free stock like Apple, Ford, and Sprint to help build your portfolio. 
sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. That's elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R dot robinhood.com. And now let's hear from Walter. Walter, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, Walter, great to have you on the podcast. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? My sobriety date is March 13th of 2016, so a little bit over two and a half years. Nice. How's it feel? Feels good. You know, it's a one day at a time process. You know, two and a half years feels a lot better than, than uh, 90 days did, uh, just in an overall emotional state. But, you know, it's, it's still a challenge. Um, I don't really want to drink anymore, but it's still a challenge, you know, with the emotional sobriety aspect of things on a daily basis. So I just have to take it, take it each day as it comes. It's a new Yeah, well, I'm excited to dive further into your journey and share it with the audience. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Walter? Well, I'm uh, 47 years old. I live currently live in Waco, Texas, uh, which is kind of halfway between Austin and Dallas. Uh, I grew up in Houston, spent the majority of my life there, but uh, moved to Waco about six months ago for an opportunity. Uh, I'm in commercial real estate. I'm a real estate investor and real estate broker uh, on the commercial side, and uh, I'm divorced. And I have a five-and-a-half-year-old boy, Michael, who lives with me uh, the majority of the time. And so really most of my free time is spent on kids' activities and you know, just uh, trying to entertain him and, and keep him busy. So when I do have time to myself, uh, I like to go see movies. I like to, uh, you know, I like to read. I like to, I like to go for hikes. Hiking is a big deal for me. I, like, I love to be outdoors and, and, and go for walks. Yeah, we'll talk about a big hike that you just did. Yeah. Um, and before we even get to your background on drinking, I just want to ask you a question with, with your son, Michael. So he's five years old, and a, a, about half of his life you're drinking and half of it has not I'm just going to throw this question, even before you ask a question like this at the end of the interview, I'm going to ask it right now. How has it changed being a father in sobriety? Oh, it's, it's, it's the night and day. I mean, uh, just being able to be present with them. I, I was, I was always a very, you know, I guess present in, in the sense of I was always there. You know, I'd come home from work, I'd, I'd make a couple of cocktails and I'd play with my son and then, you know, he'd get to bed and then I'd get to the, the real drinking. But I was, I was always, you know, angry, hungover, you know, emotionally, not available, you know, all that stuff. And, and when, when my ex-wife left, when I, he was just turning, he just turned three years old. And so I kind of had this epiphany that um, when she left that I was able to, uh, you know, I was going to go ahead and, and stop drinking and, and get sober. And um, there's a big long story behind all that, but, but basically, you know, I decided to be present with him and it was, it's, it, it's grown over the two and a half years I've been sober. You know, it's easier as he gets older and he can communicate better, but it's, it's been a wonderful experience. And without him, you know, if, if, if I wouldn't have had a son and I just would have gotten divorced and moved on, chances are, I'd say 95%. 99% sure I'd be, I'd still be drinking if I were still alive today. So mm. I'm, I'm, he, he saved my life. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think we'll touch more upon this further down the interview, but there's a big difference in being physically present and emotionally present. And so I'm excited Absolutely. to hear more about your journey. And so give listeners a little background about your drinking, Walter describe perhaps when it started, when it became a problem, your drinking habits. Did you ever put plans into place to moderate switch from beer to hard alcohol, things like that? Yeah, and, and try to give us times in your life as well. Okay, I'll keep it. I'll try and keep it brief because you know I I like to I'd like to focus more on the recovery side, and and I know mm-hmm. you, you know you and I talked about that, but but to, in a nutshell, I you know I came from an alcoholic family. Both my parents are alcoholics, and um, you know, aunts and uncles, grandparents, 
you know, it came from both sides of the family. So I have the lineage, I have the disease, I have the gene, whatever you can call it. Unfortunately, my dad passed away when I was very young. I was um, eight years old. He passed away from drinking. He died of basically cirrhosis of the liver at 39 years old, 38 years old. And my uncle also passed away, and that was my mom's brother. So my mom lost her husband and her brother in a short amount of time, both alcoholism. Wow. But that didn't stop me. You know, I had um, my mom got sober when I was 15, um, and that's about the time I started to drink. And for me, drinking changed the way I felt. It um, allowed me to be more social. It was that lubricant that we all talk about that um, was just allowed me to be uh, to feel like I was bulletproof and uh, I could could tackle the world. And you know, so I started drinking really alcoholically from day one. Um, I didn't drink all the time, but when I drank, I was binge drinker. I had the blessing to go up to the University of Colorado. Uh, in Boulder, which, you know, was always ranked in the top 20 party schools. And I immediately joined a fraternity and, uh, it was a number yeah, one party first. school for a while too. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's, it's always up there for sure. And, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I joined a fraternity and I, you know, was in a very actively party in dorm. You know, I mean, I, I made all my choices based on drinking and partying than I did, you know, for academics or, or, uh, you know, my future, it was just all about kind of, you know, in the now, you know, <laughs> We, we talk about being sober, we talk about living in the now and being present. You know, I was the same way as an alcoholic. I didn't want to worry about, like, you know, getting sober down the road. I, did, I just wanted to have a good time. And, you know, I burned out after three semesters. I lived in the house and, you know, we had a kegerator and I, you know, we always had we always had beer on tap and, you know, we always had parties. And it's just it was just too much of, a, of an easy atmosphere for an alcoholic to just be handed um, all the booze you want all the time. And, you know, like I said, I, I took small course loads. I, you know, my major wasn't too challenging. I, you know, I just, but I still, you know, still managed to fail out and uh, ended up going home for a little while. Make a long story short, you know, I ended up, that's where I learned how to drink alone. Cause I got home and all my friends were off at college and I lived with my parents and I would sneak uh, my mom, my stepdad, and I would sneak booze upstairs and drink almost on a nightly basis. And so, at, you know, the age of 19, 20 years old, I was already, you know, drinking uh, four to five, six nights a week. And I was binge drinking and I was drinking alone. Um, and I was ashamed of it, but um, it was a big secret, but I was able to pull it off pretty well. And, you know, I graduated college, moved back to Texas, because uh, I ended up going back to University of Colorado, finishing up there, uh, moved back to Texas. And then for my whole 20s into my 30s, I was more interested in drinking than I was, you know, forming relationships. I had a lot of friends from college. They're still my friends to this mm-hmm. day. They're wonderful guys, and they sustained me through relationships. I didn't, I didn't feel the need to have, you know, romantic relationships. Someone was going to hold me accountable and tell me to stop drinking and want me to be responsible. And I could always hold a job down, and I had a good career in commercial real estate. So I just ended up drinking my way through my twenties, and then at, at 30s, in my thirties, I uh, got married about 33. I, I married my drinking partner, and we proceeded to, to drink all the way through our thirties. And you know, we both held down great jobs and. Uh, we traveled a lot, and, and on the outside, we looked pretty happy, and, and we were, you know, we were we were good friends, and it was a it was a decent marriage for a long time, and uh, then we had a child, and, and when he came into our lives, things changed. You know, my my ex wasn't really uh, the motherly type; it wasn't something that she was that um, interested in, in being a mom, and it kind of just all happened. We adopted them, so it's a long story. I won't go into it here, but basically, that was kind of the downfall, and and. I wanted to make changes when he came around. I wanted to, I wanted to quit drinking. I wanted to, to, to put the bottle down. I wanted to stop using drugs, um, but I just couldn't. And uh, it was very hard when you're in a codependent relationship and the other person's an active user as well, active alcoholic. And so when the time came for you know, our marriage to break up and, and she decided to, to, to leave me, 
you know, that's when I made the decision, like, I'm going to get sober. And so I did it, you know, March 13th, 2016, I woke up and I was just done. And I'm so lucky I had that epiphany that I had that kind of, um, uh, what do you call it? The moment of clarity. And I just was done. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And it wasn't easy. I mean, those first 30, 60, 90 days were not, not easy. Um, cause I was detoxing and I was coming down and I quit smoking. I mean, I did a lot. I, I really made a big seismic shift. But I got through it, and I didn't. I didn't relapse, and I luckily haven't relapsed since then. And I've really, I've really dug into recovery in a big way. I mean, it's it's a part of my daily life. I I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm active, you know, with Recovery Elevator. Obviously, I just went on the big Peru trip, which was amazing. And um, you know, so many recovery tools out there. You know, there's not one thing that I can point at and say that's the one thing that kept me sober. I can just say that all the things that I've done have kept me sober and have allowed me to grow emotionally, uh, spiritually, you know, during this process. And it's, it hasn't been easy. And being a single dad, you know, and a single man at 47 years old is, it's not easy either. So, you know, I'm just grateful that I can be a part of a, uh, of a couple different recovery communities and that, you know, I can uh, be of service uh, to other alcoholics and to other people. Um, that's what keeps me sober on a daily basis. Walter, thanks for getting us up to speed. There's a lot of stuff to dive into. And you said something earlier, which I've heard before on this podcast. I see it in the groups all the time. And it's, I married my drinking partner. Talk to us about that. And when you realized you married your drinking partner, and then how, how, how did you tease that out and realize, okay, this is not healthy. And, and maybe is, did you guys both quit drinking or just talk to us more about that? Cause I know a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it was a rebound relationship. I mean, she was coming off of a, of a, of a long-term relationship that she was in. And I had been in a, I don't know, a couple of years relationship with, with the woman that I was deeply in love with. And, you know, we, we had been next door neighbors before. And so we knew each other kind of on a social, from the social scene, we had, you know, we, we partied a little bit together, you know, just here and there. And then when things went south with my old girlfriend and I just kind of reached out to her out of the blue and called her and she, we went and had drinks that first night. And, you know, we realized just how much we had in common. Our parents were both in real estate and our families were in real estate. And we, you know, we both come from divorced parents and alcoholism was kind of a big deal in both of our families. And, you know, but we, but we had a handle on it and, and she liked doing things that I liked doing, going to baseball games and, you know, traveling. And, and she loved hanging out with my college buddies and we'd go to weddings. And she was just a great partner to have along on all these excursions that I was going on that I was typically going on single and, you know, I was the type of guy that would end up, you know, the last guy up still drinking. I wasn't looking to hook up on pet weddings. I wasn't looking to hook up and doing like that because booze always came first. And if I, mm-hmm. you know, if it fell in my lap and sure, but I was more of a, I was more in love and my mistress was always booze. And so when I, when I found someone that understood that and kind of felt the same way, you know, we were joking on our second, third, fourth date that we were both alcoholics. Like we were just, <laughs> you know, like we're alcoholics, but whatever rehabs for quitters. And you know, that was it. That was kind of our, that was our kind of, you know, we were the partying couple. We were the party. We were the couple that always hung out outside of weddings and would smoke cigarettes, you know, and, and be in the smoking section. And, you know, we just, we, we, we weren't ever present because we were more focused on getting drunk. And, you know, I realized, you know, that I, there were some red flags early on in our relationship. And I'm sure there were some for her with me as well, but you know, we're just, the drinking took, it went a little too far and the consequences sometimes would catch up with us. And, you know, we just always, I was her protector and she was mine. And we, we kept big secrets from the whole family. We were very underground with our drinking when we were around family, mm-hmm. when we were around, uh, you know, especially my mom being an alcoholic, I had to hide this from her. And I was afraid she was going to have an intervention and send me to rehab. 
So yeah, I think, you know, and then ultimately when we, when, when things started to get a little hard, we had a kid, I wanted things different. I pushed a lot of agenda on my ex, which I've learned in recovery. You know, I, I learned where my faults were. I learned where I had been wrong in this relationship. It wasn't all her fault. It was, you know, I was just as much to blame for not being present, for being demanding and controlling, whatever it is. It's, and it's all, you know, we were both just alcoholic people and trying to deal with our lives and then we have to add a, we add a little, a little baby boy in there and, you know, everybody handles that a little differently and, and she has anxiety issues and it was hard, really, really hard for her. And I wanted her to be the perfect stay at home mom. And that wasn't really in her plans for life. So when it all came down to it, you know, we drank through the last couple of years of our marriage, let's say the last four or five, we, we basically drank all the time. I mean, five, six nights a week, sometimes seven nights a week, there was always booze. And I always had something. If it wasn't booze, it was always smoking, you know, weed or doing something else. So, you know, and so I finally realized I couldn't, for me, if we would have stayed together, I don't know if I would have quit drinking either. You know, like I told you earlier, my son's what saved my life and uh, has kept me sober or got me on the sobriety path. And then, you know, but staying married, I think would have, would have been the the antidote to that, because there would have been someone there to be a parent with me, and I would, I would have figured out a way to keep drinking. Yeah, so it's I, all it's, it's all for a reason. Yeah, and 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 I want to zoom more into the March thirteenth, two thousand and sixteen date when you got sober, and it sounds like you, you mentioned your wife left you, and then you got sober. Which it it's funny when our body gets that pain that we need, the acute pain then causes change, but not everybody makes the change. Sometimes it can propel us further into addiction. It seems like Walter, you made the opposite choice. You said, I need to make a change. Now, was it like an instantaneous type thing? Your wipe left, you got sober, or were there some red flags or some rock bottom moments before that? Did you ever attempt to moderate or is it just like March thirteenth, I'm done and I'm not looking back? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I was always trying to moderate. I was always trying to change my behaviors. I would, you know, I would only buy a, a small bottle of vodka instead of the big one, you know. And uh, there was always, I was always telling myself, I'd always wake up in the morning and tell myself I wouldn't do it that evening. So, you know, no different than a lot of alcoholics in that respect. But I was always, um, I always knew that there was a, I always knew that there was a, a path for recovery because my mom had had it. And she, I had, you know, watched her for 30 years, you know, go through this life sober with a program with a lot of, you know, wonderful recovery friends. And I knew that I could do that, but I was scared, scared shitless of what that meant and what that looked like. And that I didn't want to go in there and fail. So I never really ever got started on the path of recovery. You know, a lot of people on recovery elevator in the, in the, in the Facebook rooms, they, you know, they, they, they have a lot of day ones and I have a lot of sympathy for them. And I, I want to reach out and help them but it takes what it takes. And for me, March 13th was the day I woke up and surrendered. You know, she had left on Friday, went out of town and, you know, I ended up getting a babysitter for my son for the whole weekend. And I ended up at a friend's house and just, you know, basically crying my, my eyes out just cause the whole thing was going sideways and drank all through the night, woke up pretty early, went to a, a day party and was day drinking all day Saturday. And then Saturday night, I just, I just got home. I relieved the babysitter. It was like 10 PM. I, I remember it. I mean, I was, I should have been blacked out. I'd been drinking so much. And you know, I, I, I took a last couple drinks. I wasn't thinking I was over by any means. I just went to bed and it was daylight savings time with change. And, uh, so the clocks moved, moved, spring forward so they moved forward so i i woke up at 5 a.m but it was really like 4 a.m and mm. i was just like i just laid there and my son was laying next to me because he slept in our bed a lot and he was laying next to me and he was so peaceful and quiet and sleeping and he had no worries in the world and i had every 
anxiety and worry just flow over me. And I just looked at him and I just said, I don't, I don't know if my wife's going to ask me for a divorce when she comes back. I don't know what that all looks like, but I'm done. Like, I just can't do this anymore. And in fact, I, I ended up giving all my, my stash away to my friend down the street who, you know, was a big smoker. And I, I got rid of all the booze that I drank. I, you know, she drank wine. I drank vodka. I, I got rid of all the vodka and I just said I was done. And she came home that night. And the first thing she did was ask me for a divorce. And, uh, you know, we, we quickly tried to go through the motions of, you know, seeing a therapist and trying to save the marriage, but you know, she didn't really want any part of it. And I just kind of at one point just said, okay, it's over and let's just make this as painless as possible. And I'm super blessed to have, you know, that she, you know, we didn't fight over the kid. We didn't fight over money. We just made it happen. And we were, we were both fair to the other person's needs. And, you know, how grateful am I? Cause I hear divorce stories um, all the time that are just brutal. And, but I don't think I could have stayed married, you know, with an alcoholic. I, I don't know. I think she still drinks. I don't know. I don't, I'm sure she does. I don't, I, we, she sees my son a lot and we, we meet and we, we're very cat. We have a very, you know, friendly relationship, but I don't, I've learned in recovery that it's none of my business what she does. As long as my son's in good hands and he's safe when he's in her presence, then that's okay. You know, she can, she can live her life how she needs to. And it's not my place to sober her up and to to find her recovery. She'll have to do that on her own because you can't force it on anybody. No, I think we all know that it has to be, you have to, you have to have that moment of surrender and you can kick the tires and you can have a lot of day ones, but you really need to have that, like, I am done moment. And sometimes you have to have that I'm done moment two or three times. And it doesn't always happen like it happened for me. And, you know, I could drink tomorrow. So I'm not, I'm not saying I haven't, you know, I got through this without relapsing. I haven't relapsed to date, but I could relapse any time down the future. So I have to be very diligent and vigilant about my recovery. Can you talk to listeners a little bit more about that surrender moment? And I went through it. I think it was September 2nd or 3rd, about five days before my sobriety date. I left a wedding. I was calling my parents saying I'm going to rehab. Like I was done. Like that was the last straw for me. I had fully given up. And the next morning when I woke up, I had the gift of surrender, right? And it sounds like for you, there was even like the universe gave you an extra hour of sobriety. He said, hey, it's daylight savings time. It's, we're going to spring forward, Walter. I'm going to give you an extra hour of sobriety for you. Here you go. Just what was that mindset like? And how did you know that something was different? Uh, that's a great question, Paul. I mean, you know, I, I've spent... I've, I've sobered up in, in jail sales before, you know, I've, I've had some really, you know, I've had some consequences that weren't so great that at the time seemed like they were, you know, life altering consequences due to alcohol. And the, every previous time before March 13th, 2016, every time that I sobered up in a jail or I, you know, spent time in a hospital or, or any of these things that happened, I always felt like it was bad luck that I could still control this. Like I just had to be smarter I shouldn't have had that last shot at tequila. You know, I mean, I could sit there and be like, you know, if I just wouldn't have done these two things and, you know, replay the entire day before I end up in jail, like what happened to get me to that spot? I always had these, like, I could play this game better. If I just had one more chance uh, next time, yeah. this won't happen. And that was my, that was always my go-to. And, you know, I, I would come up with those scenarios with my ex when she had consequences. Well, if you just would have done this, you wouldn't have had that last glass of wine. You know, we could have, I'm over here, you know, armchair quarterbacking her account or her, her alcoholism or whatever, her drinking or her incidents. And, you know, at the end, it just finally got, I got, I got tired of doing that. And I just said, I don't, I think that I can't go on. I, for some, some, some reason I was able to play the tape forward and look at my whole life kind of flashed before my eyes when I was laying in bed, looking at my son, I was just like, my dad died when I was seven or eight years old. 
my son's three. Like, do I want to do this for another five years and have my son, you know, not have a father into his high school years and into his young adulthood, you know, when a father would be a kind of cool thing to have, you know, it's, it's like, I just, I just realized that maybe I need to, maybe I need to take a really hard look at this. And that's where the surrender came in. And it's funny, I didn't go to an AA meeting for like two or three weeks. And I didn't know about your, your podcast or, or the, or the recovery elevator cafe RE rooms. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I just, um, I white knuckled at it and I started going to Al-Anon because I figured my wife was the alcoholic and I still wasn't really, I wasn't really willing to like, I was hedging my bets. Like I'm dry. I'm not drinking right now, but I'm not sure I'm ready to go to AA. I'm not sure I'm ready to really do this because I may want to drink in the future, but I got further along in it. And I started, I, the one thing that really helped me was like coming out to my mom and just being like, do you have a, you know, do you have two hours? It's time to have, cause she lived in Colorado. She was in Colorado at the time. And I ended up like the next night after my wife asked me for divorce, I ended up on the phone with my mom for two or three hours and was like, I just spilled it, spilled my guts about my Burning whole life. Ships. Like, and she was, you know, she'd heard it a million yeah. times being an AA. She had heard it, but she never heard it coming from her son. And she'll still share to this day in meetings that she was absolutely floored. And she couldn't believe that I was able to pull it over her. her I was able to pull it over on her for so long but coming free to her once i did that there was kind of no turning back in my scenario like sure i could have relapsed i could have kind of you know hidden out and, and hit it from her some more but i just surrendered to the whole process it was like i just and for me i needed to just tell people that i'm an alcoholic and i'm not drinking today and have to explain that to a lot of people like are you never drinking again like i don't know but i'm not drinking today and Walter, I've done, you are actually episode 200. I've done 200 interviews on the Recovery Elevator podcast, and there are some differences, but there are some striking similarities. And especially on the recovery side, as soon as we have that initial conversation, which sounds like with your mom, you burn the ships, we start creating accountability, we start having open discussions, we're honest with ourselves and others. Um, and and that's, that's a similar theme we've all gone through, including myself. Yeah, so walk us through how the recovery process took place. It sounds like you jumped into AA. I know you got a sponsor. Tell us, tell us more about what your recovery looked like the first 30, 60, and 90 days and what it was like. Yeah. So I, I jumped, like I said, I didn't, I didn't really know of any other options other than AA. Uh, it had been something I grew up around. And so I just, for me, that just seemed like the most logical choice. So I jumped in pretty quick. Like I said, it took me about two weeks to get to my first AA meeting, but I, I got to one and it was kind of spur of the moment. I just, my ass was falling off and I was, you know, I really needed to just get away. And so I went to a meeting and it was a little rough around the edges and I didn't really love the first meeting. But I, I, I felt a connection. I felt like this is something that could work for me. So I did a little research and I found a, a group that I ended up being one, ended up being my home group. And I went to the meeting the next day, heard a guy share that just told my story and, and you know, talked about this kind of fear of this higher power business. And I just immediately gravitated towards him. He took me to a meeting the next day. I asked him to be my sponsor and, you know, he's still my sponsor today. He's a great guy. He's actually, you know, he actually sobered up in Bozeman, Montana oh, wow. um, about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and hasn't lived there in a long time. I think you and I talked about him briefly and, mm -hmm. uh, when we were in crew, right. but, but anyway, he's, um, he was great for me. And, uh, you know, he was, he was there because, you know, I was going through an emotional roller coaster with my divorce. So for me, I really needed to get to a meeting almost every day. I did over 90 meetings in 90 days. I, you know, picked up a 30 day chip. I picked up a 60 day chip. I picked up a 90 day chip. I didn't really want to, but I was told it wasn't for me. It was for the other people in the rooms. They need to see progress. And, you know, I just kind of bought into the whole AA philosophy. It, it, it works for me and it worked for me back then. And I was lucky to find 
you know, a couple of different home groups where I could go to meetings every day and have the same group of guys. I, I do a lot of men's meetings. There's a lot of that um, where I got sober in Houston. And so that's what it looked like. You know, it was, it was kind of reconnecting with men in sobriety who had been through the same thing, if not worse, you know, scenarios. And they had burned their lives down and built them back up. And, and I just, I found so much hope and resilience with some of the guys that, that I was around. And, and for me, that was that was in- extremely important. It really wasn't until I was about a year sober until I had uh, come across your podcast from a, 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 a woman I was dating and she doesn't do AA, hmm. but she really listens to your podcast a lot and, and other recovery podcasts. And she, she shared it with me and I listened. And, and what, what really got me was the cafe RE room and, and the accountability. And so when I joined that, I was extremely active. I was posting on a daily basis and got to make some really good friends in there. I'm still friends with them. And you know, I'm not quite as active as I used to be, but um, it's a, it's such a great recovery tool. But for me, I think AA is probably the, the thread that, 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 that goes the deepest. It's the, without AA, it would be, you know, that's where I get my daily kind of kickstart from is going to an AA meeting. And I still go to probably four to five meetings a week. And talk to us about Peru. I got to meet you in person, and uh, I love the in-person conversations we had, you and I, and with all the others. What was the experience like in Peru for you? Peru was amazing. I mean, it really was just such a an awesome opportunity on so many levels. Uh, first of all, you know, I make I did I I had met Tamara briefly at a Dallas brunch that we put, you know, that Trisha and, and and some other people put together. And so I had, um, I had done that. And so I, I knew her briefly, but I really didn't um, know anybody else at all other than, you know, we'd had a lot of Zoom meetings and we had talked before the meeting. But so I made, as I was flying down there and I was one of the first ones there, I kind of had this, this vision that I would, I would make, I would, I would try and find 30 minutes to an hour with each person over the first, you know, call it two or three days to really get to understand who they are, what makes them tick um, and just have that one-on-one uh, connection. And I think I was pretty, I think I was able to do that for the most part with everybody there. And that just kind of catapulted the rest of the trip because I, I really knew everybody's story even before they would share. I mean, everybody got the chance to share their story at some point along the trip. And, you know, a couple of people, cause we had such a big group didn't share it till almost the end of the trip, but you know, we'd already known so much about them. But so I really, to me, making those connections was so key. And then just doing the service work was amazing. I mean, the, the proving hearts and the, just getting to know some of those, you know, incredible young ladies and Danny and, and Edwin and, and all the people that, 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 that spend their lives making other, other people's lives better uh, was just, it was just incredible. And then of course, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't have signed up for the trip if it wouldn't have been for, you know, the Inca trail and the Machu Picchu experience. That was the carrot that got me on this trip. But if you would have told me, Hey, it's over. You're flying home after, you know, before the, before we started the hike, it still would have been an incredible, incredible mm. journey. But, you know, for me, um, I struggle with my weight. I've, uh, you know, especially in, especially in sobriety, I've, I've gained probably 40 pounds as I got sober. So for me, the, the experience was, it, it gave me something to work towards in terms of trying to, you know, get my, get my body and my mind in shape for the long hike. And it was, you know, it was not an easy hike. It was, you know, four days and we close to 25, 30 miles of hiking and then a lot of altitude and, and, and a lot of unstable surfaces and a lot of rocks. But it was, it was incredible. And I was thinking about this morning. I don't, I don't think I really struggled physically um, during the trip. I mean, there were some times where it was hard, it was rainy, it was cold, um, and I was sore and I was tired. But emotionally and spiritually, I was so there. I was so in the present moment that I could have, there was, there was a day we walked for like 10 or 12 hours and I, I could have kept walking. Hmm. I could have gone another two or three hours. Like I, 
I didn't want to. Like, I was ready to be done. I was ready to drink some coca tea, but it was such an incredible experience for me. And, you know, I've shared this uh, with some other people. Like, I, I feel a little bit like, you know, I had my headphones in a lot. I had a lot of just kind of music that, that speaks to my soul. And that allowed me just to, just to kind of go introspective on a lot of this hike. Because for me, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm hiking up 14,000 feet of altitude, it's hard to have a conversation. But I can have music in my ears and I can be kind of in my head and I'm not thinking about 14,000 feet, what that looks like and how my lungs are burning. I'm just, I'm just kind of in it and I'm spiritually rolling with music and, and thinking about all the things in my life that I want to change and how I want life to look like. It was such a cathartic experience and it's really got me going. I mean, I want to do, I want to do more hikes. I want to do more you know, physical activity. I want to push myself. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of laziness when I got sober because I gave myself the, the excuse that, well, I'm not drinking, I'm not using drugs. So therefore it's okay to have, you know, two pieces of cake every night and, you know, eat a fourth meal. Like that's the type of stuff that I let myself get away with. And it was getting away from me. And, and I've seen a lot of people in sobriety die early because of the, they let food take over their addiction. They just change out alcohol and turn it to food. And I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be one of those guys. I want to be healthy for my son. Walter, you mentioned the present moment while on Inca Trail. And being in the present moment is addictive because I experienced the same thing. I had a heavy pack. It was raining. And they said, hey, guys, lunch is 30 minutes away or dinner is just around the corner. And I'm like, that's it? I wanted it to keep going. And there's some energy fields on this planet. The Sacred Valley is one, which is where the Inca Trail is located. And the other one is in Nepal. And there are these two polar you know, opposites on the planet. And there's just a lot of energy in that area that pulled me into the present moment as well. And it was, it was magical for me as well. And thank you, Walter, for being part of that. There will be more trips to come, and I hope we get to connect again. Um, you know, one thing yeah. that I was wrong about when I quit drinking that is that quitting drinking was going to be a panacea of sorts that, you know, hey, I quit drinking, bring it on, world, which helped me tremendously. But there were other issues, you know, the why that I drank. And you mentioned earlier, you just mentioned, you know, the food. And with over two years of sobriety, what what would you like to move forward with and what would you like to address? So for me, I still struggle with, and, and I've done a lot of work through therapy, through talk therapy, through, you know, just a lot of work in AA to really come up with what drives me, you know, what are the fears that that, that ran me to drinking and to change the way I feel, whether it's food or booze. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's the feeling of not being good enough. It's the feeling of not being loved that, you know, that I can get around a group. I mean, I, I actually had this feeling in Peru that, uh, you know, there was a, there was a few moments of where I really let self doubt come in that like, Oh, you know, everybody's just being nice to me because, because I'm here and I paid my money and I'm part of the trip, but really no one really here wants to spend any time with me. No one really likes me. Like they're just, they're just putting up with me, you know, Oh, I just, I just tried to make a one liner and it, it didn't, it fell on deaf air, deaf ears, you know, Oh man, I'm such a loser. No one likes me. Like, I mean, I still had to struggle with that and nobody on that trip gave me any indication that, that they were thinking anything other than love for me, but yet I still don't believe it. I mean, I, mean, I have it with my family and my mom, my, my sister, my ex-wife, I mean, all these people that, you know, family members that, that love me that I feel like, uh, they, they just, you know, I'm just there. Like I'm, I'm their brother, I'm their son, I'm their father. I, they kind of have to love me, you know? So that I don't, you know, I can, I can really dig deep and try to figure out where all that came from, but that's still something I struggle with. You know, I'm dating and, you know, online dating is Oh, it's just, it's the worst, but you know, it's the way we date to, in today's society and, you know, getting ghosted and people not responding to you and, and all that. It's so disheartening. 
and I have to remember that I'm good enough. I'm perfect how I am. And you know, that, that, yeah, I can make changes. I can eat better and I can exercise and, and that'll make me, you know, lose weight and that'll make me feel better, but it's how I, it's how I handle it beyond that. That's not going to change. You know, that's not going to make my life any better. It's going to, uh, from the inside, I mean, you know, healthy wise, it's a little different story, but you know, I just have to realize that it's not like if I were to lose 40 pounds and be at my top shape, like, what's that mean? Does that mean I'm happy and everything's going to be peachy keen for the rest of my life? No, but my, my brain tells me that's the case. And so I have to be real careful and not get too tied up in the results and spend more time in the journey and in the day-to-day process of today, what can I do to be happy? What can I do to make my life, my son's life better? What can I do to be present for him? You know, what can I do to, to advance my career? Like the things I can do today. And I'm not going to lose 40 pounds today, but I can eat better today. And maybe if I eat better for, you know, 40, for 40 weeks in a row, then I'm going to lose some weight, you know, but it's not, I'm trying not to get too tied up in the results and letting that, letting that dictate how I live my life. Walter, I love how you just wrap that up together at the end. And there's a litmus test that I've been placing my own life lately. If I can say these two words after I reach a goal, then it's not really a goal that I need to put in the forefront of my life. And those two words are, then what? So you just said it. If, if, if I get to a point where I lose 40 pounds and then I say, okay, then what? Then I need to kind of rethink, you know, retool the plan because you just said it. It's the journey. Happiness is not a destination. So yeah, I love what you said there. And I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. And that question, Walter, is what have you learned about yourself in recovery? Oh, man. I mean, so much. I'm so much more self-aware of my surroundings, uh, the people around me, but, and how I, how I interact with them. You know, some of the stuff I thought was real cute. I mean, I'm, you know, you got to know me a little bit. You got to know me on the crew trip. You know, I, I'm kind of a cut up at times. I sometimes want to make the whole crew laugh and, and sometimes that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't hit. And sometimes it hits beautifully and I'm, I'm patting myself on the back. I used to live my whole life for those, for those moments, you know, almost like a, a comedian has to have that laugh, has to have that validation. And, you know, that was a, that was a common theme in Peru is that, you know, it's, it's the way it's supposed to be right now. We're good enough the way we are. And, you know, that's a, that's, it's easier said than done, but if you can, it's, you keep repeating that self to yourself. I've learned that, you know, it's okay. And that I'm good enough how I am. And, and that's been, you know, it's, it, that's been a real battle throughout my whole recovery. And, and definitely before I got sober, you know, I've just learned to be more self-aware and that, I don't have to be the funniest guy in the room and I don't have to, you know, everybody doesn't have to love me and I don't, and I don't have to, I don't have to present myself so that everybody loves me. I'm okay the way I am. And if, you know, if, if I'm not a good fit for you, then we don't need to spend time together and that's fine. Walter, um, I, I heard that realization from a couple people on the trip. It's, I don't have to be anymore. And that's a beautiful moment to arrive at in life when we realize, wait a second, I don't have to be anybody that I'm not. And it feels so good when we get to that moment. I'm glad you realized that as well. It took me a while to finally reach that moment. And Walter, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, probably waking up in jail on my fifth wedding anniversary. And it wasn't anything that I did like towards my ex. It was, uh, just a drunken, a drunk, a drunken night in Chicago that landed me in the in, in the clink. That was pretty demoralizing, for sure. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment, indicating the gig is up? Oh man, I don't know. That's I, I 
<laughs> I'm sorry I don't have an answer for that one. It just nothing's coming to mind. Yeah, totally fine. Next question, Walter. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Keep taking it one day at a time. Keep doing what's been working and to find more opportunities to be present with people, whether it's family, friends, or strangers and new people. Because, you know, I made 19 new really good friends from the Peru trip. And um, I want to do more things along those lines because that's where I get a lot of sustenance. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? You know, I'd probably have to say AA, but sober travel. I mean, I want to do more Peru type trips. I don't really care where the destination is. I just love the experience of traveling with, you know, like-minded sober people who uh, are on the same journey I am, whether they're six months sober or 60 years, it's, it's all good. And, uh, I, I, if I could do more sober travel, I think that would, that would be my favorite part of the whole, of the whole thing. Walter, I have a call at 11 AM scheduled with a company in Asia that puts together, uh, travel itineraries for groups. So yes. I will keep all you guys in the loop. And I want to comment on number two. When I asked that question and you had no answer, I'm going to say this. I don't have to be the guy that has all the answers. I love it how you did not have an answer for number two. I absolutely yeah. love it. And next question, number five, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, I think the, I think the idea of turning it over and, and, and not trying to control things you can't control. I find a lot of solace in the serenity prayer and, and, and uh, just not being able to control the things uh, that I can't control and knowing the difference. Yeah. What parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? Just keep trying. You know, it, it's okay if you slip up. It's okay if you drink again. When you're ready to quit drinking for good, it'll happen. And um, it doesn't always have to be horrible consequences that get you there. When you're ready to quit, you know, you'll know and uh, know that there's a lot of other avenues out there. Uh, there's a lot of different tools to put in your toolkit for recovery and uh, find the best one that works for you. Uh, because what works for me, it doesn't necessarily work for the next guy. And what works for him doesn't work for the guy after him. So you have to find what works best for you. Everybody's Indeed. different. And before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. Oh, so I was going to use the getting, yeah, you might be an alcoholic if you get arrested on your fifth anniversary, wedding anniversary, but I already used that one. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I think you might be an alcoholic if you're, you know, using a fake ID to buy booze so that you can drink solo by yourself on a weekly, you know, on a weekly, on a, on a nightly basis before you even turn 21. Also I think that a good probably one. would, would, uh, yeah, I think that would definitely justify calling me an alcoholic. Yeah, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we get to connect again on one of these international destinations or local destinations Me or whatever. Too. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Walter. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. Before we depart, I've got a couple of you might be an alcoholic if lines from Nikki. And Nikki, congratulations on making this journey into an alcohol free life. Number one, you might be an alcoholic if you buy books on sobriety on your Kindle, then buy several other random books you don't plan on reading to hide the sobriety books in case someone gets a hold of your Kindle. Thank you, Stigma. You might be an alcoholic if you lose track of the empty bottles and cans you hide around the house. Yes, this one definitely constitutes a good you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you take a sip of wine, tell your significant other it's bad and you're going to go throw it out so you can go back into the kitchen knock back that glass and pour another one. Thank you for those submissions, Nikki, and congratulations on a couple days of sobriety. Guys, thanks for listening. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh-huh.